Hello and welcome to Annotations uh, to Art, Politics and Life Itself. My name is Enrico Heller. My guest today is Keith McVeigh. Keith left school at 16. After spending 10 years in engineering, he enrolled as a mature undergraduate student at Queen's University Belfast, where in 1996, he was awarded a PhD in philosophy. In 2003, Keith returned part-time to Queen's for an MA in composition. He started performing in the late 1970s, during the heyday of the Belfast punk scene, and went on to play and record everything from folk, blues and metal, to serial, concrete and experimental music. Keith and I go back a long way. We met in Belfast back in 1989, and over the next three years collaborated on a number of critically acclaimed projects, including a symphony on Luther, post-dramatic rendering of John Osborne's Luther, which at the time was the largest ever production stage at Belfast Civic Arts Theatre. We were connected last year when I was invited to co-create a silent lecture, our Belfast Lecture on Compassion, as part of my global silent lecture series. Now I can see that Keith is already here, so let me let me invite him in. There he is. Keith, how are you doing? Good, how are you? We have sound. <laughs> yes. That, those are the wonders of technology. Keith, I have already introduced you. Um, and um, for those listeners who have been bearing with us, and um, um, apologies, we've had enormous trouble to get the sound going, and it's taken yeah. us at least 10 attempts. But here we are, we're alive, and we're talking. Um, Keith, I did already introduce you briefly. Um, so let's let's kind of dig straight in. When we first started discussing the possibility of an, uh, engaging in a dialogue about your work and practice, uh, you sent me this statement from Hugo Ball, quote, every word that is spoken and sung here at Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich represents at least this one thing, that this humiliating age has not succeeded in winning our respect. Now, now that was back in 1916 at the height of the First World War. From your perspective as a cultural producer, Keith, as a philosopher, composer, pianist, what does Hugo Ball mean by this humiliating age? Well, I'm, I can't speak very much about his politics, uh, but I just think and uh, the story of Hugo Ball himself, he had just returned from you know, the front uh, where he tried to go and fight for his country, uh, probably filled with romantic ideas, you know, and he was so horrified at the, the horror that he found there, you know, the mechanization of killing that I think he got all his romanticism knocked out of him and he realized that the situation was just completely absurd and there was no point in paying any respect to that. And from what I've read from him and the other uh, founders of Dadaism, their, their equation basically was anything that has led to this point of mindless destruction, we can't respect that anymore. So they would have included, you know, all romantic art and in fact, all art that had come before. So it was embracing the nonsense, I suppose you could tie it in with some sort of uh, uh, response to absurdity and maybe in an Albert Camus sort of sense of embracing the absurdity. So their answers to every question was yes and no. And their new, well, I was going to call it a movement, but of course 
Hugo Ball himself didn't like the idea of a movement. Again, the contradictory thing. For them, Dada was artistic, anti-art. So the idea was we can't continue to engage in basically anything that's gone before this horror of the First World War, because it's such a nonsense. So uh, and a way you can think of, of them as being destructive, but at the same time, they had the spirit of creativity in them. So they wanted to go on being creative and being artistic, but in a way that was at the same time denying all the art that had gone before. And, I, and my connection with Hugo Ball is just a very personal kind of psychological thing. At a very young age, maybe the age of 16, I went to London by myself on, a, on pilgrimage just to look at some art and I encountered Dadism there. And I have no idea why, I have no idea why, but it just really connected with me and it's always stayed with me. He's just one of my heroes. And uh, so, so rather than have any words of my own, I just borrowed his words when you asked me to talk about where we are in the world at the minute uh, with art and, and whatever crises there might be at the minute. I just thought that was a pretty good quote and a pretty good attitude and it sums up my the, the nonsense that runs through most of my creativity I just connect with that idea and uh, I'm not suggesting that we are living in horrendous times to that degree but I also don't think we're living in very good times I mean it's it's interesting Keith I mean um, um, Hugo Paul of course um, was German and he fled Germany uh, who was at war um, and he fled Germany to avoid being drafted into the war. So he, he was actually, if you like, a refugee. Um, he fled to Switzerland uh, with his partner, um, and they opened this this club, Voltaire, which was pretty much a nightclub, if you like. So it wasn't some kind of ivory tower. Um, it was very much a kind of a place where people met. And I would imagine, you know, a lot of refugees too. I mean, people who'd been in similar situations who had very existential personal experiences uh you know with the war and and with with that with, with that situation and within that context this notion of humiliation is quite is is one that i think that's really worth reflecting on a little bit before we move on i mean what exactly was humiliating about this age for somebody like hugo ball from your own imagination where you kind of reflect on you know the, his journey from Munich to Zurich, leaving mm -hmm. stuff behind the risk of possibly being kind of captured and brought back by some kind of collaborators Nazi collaborators um and, and of course also the poverty that went along with that because of course they could only take very little things with them so it was a very precarious a very dangerous a very unsettling time mm. um and at the same time these people were highly educated and and cultured, sophisticated. So what exactly does Hugo Ball mean by humiliating, humiliating times? Uh, well, I one way, if I was to conjure up the feeling of humiliation, we could just think about our own time and watching the news and the sorts of people that are in charge of us and the sorts of people who are making decisions about our lives, particularly if you're not very well off, and looking at the, uh, the very, very rich people that make decisions about how we, uh, the not very rich, live our lives, that humiliation is the only word for that, really. You know, listening to people talking utter 
um, well, nonsense, really, you know, and their ideologies and their self-preservation of their, oh, I, I don't really want to talk about politics too much. I don't feel qualified, but it's just uh, the powerful protecting their own and continuing to have what they have and wrapping it all up with ideologies which don't actually make any sense, don't follow through very well, ignoring the green issues, ignoring the state of the the world and climate change. And I just think I get what Hugo Ball means when he says that. It's interesting is. because, of course, he would have said that in German, in the German language. Yes, and yes. humiliation in German is Erniedrigung. And Erniedrigung means lowering. It means you're being you're being diminished. It's yeah. it's it's the you could instead of saying humiliating age, you could probably treat it as a diminishing age. Okay. Um, and, and it's quite interesting. And of course, humiliation in, in English has a different sort of, if you like, sphere of resonance than Anitrico yeah. has in 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 German. Um, yeah. There's one aspect to Anitrico, and that is is that when you fall to your knees, or yeah. when you're being asked to knee. To kneel, right. um, there is a kind of a needlegong. There is a kind of a humiliation when you're being asked to 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 bow in front of whatever is somebody you don't respect or or this kind of idea. Um, yeah. and, and it's very much in in the German word. It's very much in 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 the word. So there is it, it, it's interesting this idea of humiliation as a as a sort of a diminishing of who we are. Um, it's not just kind of in a way hurting or it's not just but it's yeah. actually making us lesser humans it's yeah. a sort of um it, it's it's a very very interesting thing and the kind of the dehumanizing the the, the um uh, of, is, is very much i think part part of that idea now when you when you look at sort of dadaist poetry or texts they can feel they scramble you know they can feel very nonsensical. Why do you think? But what is the link between that sort of scrambled, nonsensical aspect of Adanaism and and the way that relates to the perception of reality? Well, I can I kind of do. I don't know why. I just I haven't thought about this before, but I'm kind of relating it to. Uh, it's it's the time of Freud and Jung and the beginnings of the existentialist thinking. I suppose. Well, it is really the existentialists were up and running by then, and I, I know it's too early for Camus, but it's a response to the absurdity is to uh, embrace it and to use humor. There's definitely humor there. Uh, and Eric Satie, who would be a hero of mine, a uh, favorite composer, he was among them as well. And it's impossible to write about that humor because it, it's almost performative, it, it does what it does. The poem does what it does when you listen to the nonsense of it, and it's beyond analysis, and that's kind of the point, because the analysis has got them nowhere. All the great thinking of the art critics and all the academies and so on lead us to trenches and a generation being killed in the mud. So why would you deal with that much sense ever again? Let's just babble nonsense. But it's also done in an artistic way, and that's kind of the genius of it that it is artistic anti-art. It's not just nihilism. It's not just let's burn the galleries or something like that. It's that make another art. And I'm going to jump forward massively in our conversation to the sort of thing that you might find in an instant opera, just to <laughs> mention that a bit early in our conversation. It might be instant and it might not be finished. And all those inherent contradictions, 
that I think you do brilliantly uh, give names to the uh, complete but not incomplete, complete but not complete. Uh, and all the time in the Dadaist manifestos, they will say that this is art and it is not art. There, there's something there is something interesting about the idea of the artist rejecting interpretation, isn't there? The artist rejecting the kind of the the, the, the kind of the, the, the critical gaze. Yeah. Um, th th that is a very interesting because, of course, that critical gaze, as you said very you know correctly, very rightly. So, in so many ways, this sort of Western rationality, you know, our sort of sense of cultural superiority, and uh, and sort of like our kind of um, sense making led us into this catastrophe that was the First World War, and and of course the brutality of the trench warfare, and 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 you know the 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 millions of people, the first industrial war uh, in in history, uh, of course led to a certain you know sort of you wouldn't say speechlessness because of course yeah. there was speech, yeah. but a sort of a senselessness. Um, and 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 that that is really really well captured. But it is what is what makes Dadaism so interesting is is that it is done in a very humane way. Um, it is not kind of scrambled by a kind of automated computer program. It, yeah. It's not you know it it is it's very much the the, the, the human mind scrambled by kind of historical events. It, it's a very very interesting thing. Um, now yeah, there there are obviously kind of you know like there have been other movements uh, throughout history uh, that in a way have engaged um, with you know you know with their times, um, but. Actually, going back through the 20th century, not so many did. I mean, there have been many movements from, you know, whatever, Cubism to this and the other, which had their very own agenda, almost kind of, you know, away from um, our social reality. Uh, not quite. I mean, and a lot of people would kind of disagree with this, but they weren't kind of as existentially involved uh, in our social reality the way Dadaism possibly was. Now, yeah. um, Do, do you see anything comparable, any kind of, anything comparable in today's kind of um, the cultural practice that would somehow engage? I mean, you, you've kind of you know touched on this. I mean, we've had climate, we've got the, the climate change crisis, we've got two wars going on, one in Israel, Palestine, one in the Ukraine. We have a kind of a cost of living crisis. We, you know, levels of poverty and of child poverty unseen for decades in post-war uh, uh, Europe. Um, and, um, and, and, and there is a kind of a level of polarization in society and a sort of a, a bigotry and a sort of a, sort of like a level of hate in social media and, and so on and so forth. Um, that, that is quite extraordinary. So you would expect art in some ways to, to, to engage with this, not just at a kind of individual artist level, but you would imagine there to be some kind of collective response or some kind of movement emerge from that, that confronts that. In the way Dadaism did, can you see any kind of collective praxis that you feel kind of addresses or kind of in an adequate way or has the capability to address in an, in an adequate way uh, adequate by today's sort of uh, challenges. Well, if if you mean if you mean by contemporary, you know, mean now this bubble of time right now, sort of five year period. Um, I'm coming up blank. I'm I'm not thinking of anything. But if you let the word contemporary a bit bigger, you might say, and this is quite interesting for you and I to talk about this. Uh, punk punk rock in a way. 
I'm not a huge fan of punk rock, you know, artistically speaking or musically speaking, but you have to say it is an interesting phenomenon, you know, and particularly the punk rock uh, where I come from uh, in Northern Ireland was of a different shade to elsewhere. It was a bit less nihilistic. There was more hope in it and there was a better, uh, it was more of a cultural uh, response. Uh, so, it was taking things back to ground zero in a way. It was like year zero. Uh, we're doing music again. We're doing it with three chords and we're not doing it with very much ability. Uh, and we're taking it back. And if, um, funny enough, another phrase just comes into my mind just as I'm saying that. Uh, the subtitle of Hugo Ball's earlier book is called uh, The Dandyism of the Poor, which is it's a very interesting phrase. Dandyism. Or bohemianism is kind of referred for you imagine well-off people who maybe choose to live poorly but what about people who are just actually poor are they allowed to be that are they allowed to be ridiculous and humorous and artistic well yeah so the reason why i said it would be interesting for you and i to talk about this so we talk about punk rock in belfast to those outside belfast you know in england some they might not get the nuance of northern irish punk rock because it was actually a bit more like the ideology of the hippies. Uh, there was a bit more of a peace and love because the the place where they were was in a violent, you know, a violent part of the world with the troubles and all the troubles going on, and their response was to uh, well, if you if you paint it in a very good light, you might say they were less sectarian than any of the politicians or any of the people in power or anybody teaching them in school or anybody in their churches. The punks actually were the antithesis of that violence, even though they have like an image of punky violence. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about that. But my main answer to your question is not right now, because that is going back a bit, obviously. And then I was also thinking, going back a few years before that, you have Kraut Rock, which, as I understand it, was uh, German young people uh, trying to get a new musical form uh, because they were still lived in a post-war time, and if they lived in a you know a rural community or something, they, they still had um, people who had you you'll tell me about this were you know not very good histories from the war time. There were people who were the Lord Mayor of their little town who was a Nazi, you know, and they had to reject it and they had to move on. But they also did not want to just sound like Americans, and they didn't want to sound like British pop either. So they used synthesizers and they didn't use guitars. And you have this thing called Kraut Rock, which I always thought was very funny that they were happy enough with that term, but they were. Uh, and it's quite revolutionary. It's definitely a response and it's definitely a bit of nonsense in there. You know, there's a lot of humour in Kraut Rock, definitely. There's a lot of humour in punk as well and nonsense. And, you know, I would sort of think of my answer to the question was no, contemporary, right now. I can't think of an example of what you're asking for. Somebody actually responding in any way like the Dadists were responding to their humiliating time. But if you go back a wee bit, I would mention punk, particularly Northern Irish punk, and uh, rock, as I understand it. It's interesting because, I mean, of course, um, in, in, in music, um, um, especially in the kind of the wider field of popular music, and I kind of would include rock uh, in that, um, um, there you have kind of cultural currents, which in, in a way were driving change. I mean, when you, I mean, it actually started, of course, long before punk. I mean, like, you know, you know, rock and roll kind of like uh, and, 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 and kind of what preceded it really up from from the 1950s onwards. 
um, electronic music, um, and then obviously, you know, w with rock and roll and all the rest. And then, of course, going into things like punk uh, later, um, uh, kind of paved the way. And, and in a way, you could almost sort of see as punk as a sort of a, a rejection of the kind of the bourgeois values of rock and roll, the kind of a, a sort of a rejection of the Mick Checkers of this world. Yeah. I mean, to, you know, um, and um, or the Lord Checkers, I should say. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. They became sort of, sort of, um, they became appropriated. They became part of uh, the, the the kind of um, uh, the the mainstream in the way, and that almost didn't kill, but it somehow um, took away some of some some of the magic, uh, uh, you know, of the music. Um, and, and of course, punk kind of kind of recaptured that. Um, and um, and you're absolutely right. And that that probably was the last time. Well, that happened. Of course, there's another kind of movement, and and I never really kind of engaged with that to any significance. But of course. Uh, you know, the techno uh, had also a similar, well, a diff very different, but a kind of a thing of a sort of a liberating thing because it was these these massive underground parties. It was, you know, it was a bit like pirate, uh, pirate radio. It was this idea of doing things outside the mainstream without licenses too. Uh, and, and again, there was a kind of drive and a kind of thing about that. Um, and, and, and techno had, of course, very different forms in different countries. So the German techno quite different, say from French techno or British techno. Um, and, and so again, there was everything like that. And of course, another thing, which again, is quite not alien, but not really my kind of thing, a whole hip hop thing, you know, the, and, and the gangster rap and all that. Again, you know, these were kind of cultural musical expressions uh, that in some ways um, responded to the kind of the social reality. But now looking at today and currently, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I don't see any of this anymore. I mean, you have the old guys who basically kind of bring their bands back together to kind of fund their retirement, but but that's about it. Um, you know, um, in, in fact, you know, the likes of the Beatles, you know, you, you, you mustn't forget the Beatles started, of course, I believe in Liverpool, they went to art college, and then they went on the dole. They kind of claimed benefits for years of a long time before they actually started to make money with their music. Now, in today's system, with, you know, like horrendous college fees and very, very kind of like, you know, minimal kind of benefits, um, it's very hard for any band or any musician to come up now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you're agreeing with me then, or is it possible we are missing the point that uh, I don't know how many people at the time of Cabaret Voltaire knew that that was going on. Is it possible? It's not really possible, actually. So my answer to your question is no, I, I can't see uh, the artistic response to our current humiliating times. And it seems to me that you're saying the same thing, that you can't think of anything right now. And I was going to ask you the question then, is it possible we're just missing the point? We're just looking in the wrong place and we're not seeing it. But to answer my own question, with social media and all, surely we should be hearing about it, you know? How, how could it be that there is a good response somewhere, that there is something like punk going on or something like, you know, a response from the disenfranchised uh, and rejection to uh, the establishment? And we're missing it. I don't think we're missing it. I I can't see it unless I'm wrong. I, I can't see it. So well, I, 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 I think there's 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 a couple of kind of sort of like um, sort of challenges or problems or uh, coming together here. What one is of course that when you look at Dadaism, um, 
or, or the Dadaist kind of movement and, and how they express themselves. It was a very immediate way of expressing. They didn't kind of go through the kind of rigmarole of kind of like, you know, writing a funding application and uh, waiting for Arts Council funding or somebody to kind of give them money and then print some posters or kind of set up some social media kind of operation or whatever. No, they just basically did it. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very immediate, a very raw, a very direct way of responding. And there was very little filtering going on. Um, and so that that direct unfiltered response enabled them also to do whatever they wanted and yeah. to be whoever they wanted to be. Yeah. So I think, you know, the kind of the Dadaism of the day would not be possible now when people think in these funding terms, because it just somehow makes it look really silly to kind of go and kind of go through a real fundraising drive to then put on a show, wrap people wrapped in cardboard and kind of coming up with scrambled words. Why do you have to kind of go for a big fundraising thing for that? Well, yeah, we all have to live. I accept that. Um, but, but, but the two things don't necessarily have to, you know, be synonymous. Um, and, uh, and, and so in a way, I think there is this issue that we have, that we have started to professionalize the arts in a way, or we have not just started, but we have actually professionalized and commodified the arts in a way that this yes. kind of immediacy is kind of now very, very hard to, to achieve. Um, because of course the other thing is is funding cycles operate on like on on time scales of 12 to 18 to 24 months. So you're now kind of thinking about what you're going to do next year or the year after, which again, yeah. you know, is great, but it puts you into this kind of planning at, yeah. into, into this sort of strategic frame of mind, which is very, very different. And of course, you don't want to mess up your funding relationships either. So you kind of somehow, you know, make sure that if it's critical, it's critical in the kind of the right way. Because of yeah. course, a certain form of critique is very welcome, but other forms of critique are not. And so you're going to make sure that you kind of that you're on the right side of critique as well as anything, and that kind of makes for kind of quite a stage managed kind of culture. Now, um, let me, you know, I mean, th th this is a thing. I mean, there've been other, there've been a number of movements. Um, Dada, as you mentioned, but one that also really inspired me great is is Fluxus, uh, Fluxus. Yeah. Uh, the Fluxus movement. Of course, there was big names like Joseph Boyce and others associated with this. Uh, but the actual, the guy who actually came up with it, you know, he's almost been forgotten again. He was a kind of a, a marginal, well, today he would be seen as a kind of a, almost marginal figure. Um, and and it's interesting, the, the kind of influence of Fluxus, and it started as a publication, interestingly enough. Um, but it kind of went far beyond that. Um, and then another kind of movement that I also thought was really interesting, uh, Povre, this kind of Italian movement that sort of had this idea that we, we need to, in some ways, you know, for as long as we create art that requires significant resources to do it, we have to somehow secure those resources before we can do it. So our poverty was all about kind of doing away with that, peeling away uh, those requirements, working with found objects, with things that found the street kind of, and, and rearranging things and working in a very improvised uh, sort of ephemeral kind of way. And again, that kind of, and this was back in the 1960s, 70s, was taking them back very much to kind of a Dadaist kind of frame of reference. Uh, so I thought that was really, really interesting. Now, um, of course, I've been working on my own uh, sort of, um, if you like, um, sort of critique uh, of, 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 um, um, of, of of contemporary culture or, or practice uh, and um and you know kind of I, I wouldn't mind sort of reading out briefly this kind of manifesto um that that um uh, that I sort of come up with because I think it really relates directly 
it, if you like, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a 21st century version of data because it's not. I mean, history doesn't repeat itself that way, but it is in some ways responding or looking for ways that would open up spaces where we can have a direct engagement with the kind of issues of our day without having to go through these filters uh, and having to constantly ask for permission. So let me just read this out. Um, towards a shared understanding of a new form. So, you know, some notable expect, uh, exceptions notwithstanding, no art form is as overtly elitist and as inherently imperialist as opera. At the same time, through the combination of sound or music, art or drama, performance or acting, and movement or dance, opera offers artists of all stripes and colors a shared canvas that is potentially larger and a collaborative platform that is potentially richer and more diverse than any other. As our fundamental freedoms and human rights increasingly come under serious and sustained attack, our democracies are on the retreat and authoritarianism is on the rise again globally. Opera must reinvent itself, free itself from its imperialist traditions so that we can realize its full potential as a contemporary cultural force for good. For this to happen, we need to start thinking and practicing opera differently. We need to do away with entrenched social and cultural conventions, with big budgets, large stage sets, and long rehearsal periods. In other words, we need to free opera from the constraints artists have no control over and reconstitute it as a popular practice. We call this new practice instant opera. It puts the means of cultural production where they belong, namely at the artist's disposal. Whilst instant opera comes with its own set of constraints, it allows artists to create autonomously works of great beauty that only ever exist in the here and now, works that are always provisional yet final, that are partial but yet incomplete, that come into being instantaneously whenever we come together as equals to practice our art collaboratively. As a self-governing interdisciplinary practice, instant opera is neither intrinsically nor exclusively linked to any particular type of institution or target demographic. Instead, it occupies underutilized and overlooked spaces to reach new audiences. Instant opera is a relational practice where performers negotiate their relationship to the work, to each other and to the audience during performance each time anew. And in so doing, co-create unique temporary works of living art. Instant opera differs from other live art performance practices in that it implies a shared approach, text and or score and often involves a director, a writer, a composer, and or a conductor. Whilst rehearsals are kept to an absolute minimum, a few hours at most, instant opera requires participants to practice their parts independently beforehand, learn the lines, etc., so that everyone enters each collaboration fully prepared. Given its impromptu nature, not all scores and texts or scripts lend themselves to be presented as instant opera, and hence many need to be adapted, if not rewritten entirely. Over time, this will create a new genre with its very own repertoire of works. Part gig, part happening, instant opera has the potential to decolonize opera, 
by limiting unwanted outside influences whilst unbounding collective creativity, to democratize opera by opening new spaces and reaching new audiences, and to transform opera by shortening production cycles and facilitating risk-taking. The opera is dead. Long live the opera. So that's, you know, um, the, the, the idea um, that we, you know, we have created these institutions, you know, the institution of the theater, the institution of the opera house and the opera, the institution of the concert hall, the institution of the art gallery. And we have created production lines uh, that, you know, that, that deliver that, that kind of feed, uh, you know, cultural product, uh, you know, in, into, these, into these spaces. Um, and we are doing this in a really clever way, in a way so that we still feel that this is all very open, very democratic, and 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 you know, uh, um, uh, and very free. But the reality is a very very different one. It's become a sort of a professionalized, sort of um, scientificated. Um, you know, there was a time. Um, you know, my my old professor uh, 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 in Belfast uh, in, in in fine art, Alistair McLennan, I believe he doesn't have a master's degree didn't exist back then when he was at college. Well, a few years later, the master's degree was brought in and you had to have a master's. Yep. That only lasted a few years because now you need to have a PhD. <laughs> and, and this kind of inflation that has started in the arts um, is really quite extraordinary. And it goes hand in hand with the sort of the commodification, professionalization of the arts outside the academy. Um, and so the question is, how can sort of a Dadaism or a Fluxus or an Art Pauvre kind of re-emerge as a mirror uh, and as a sort of a, a cultural response uh, to the, the, the kind of the challenges we face? Mm -hmm. I was uh, having a, a, a smile to myself when you were talking about, uh, you know, the cycle of getting funding being anything as long as 24 hours, 24 uh, months. And I was thinking uh, Dada would have come and gone <laughs> in that period. <laughs> if the Dada had sought funding in 2017 or in 1917, by the time they got their funding, <laughs> it would have been disbanded. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, no, not only that, yeah. it was such a fragile and such a difficult period. Do you really think the Swiss government <laughs> yes. or a Swiss authority would have given you know, yeah. Hugo Ball money to stand there and in a kind of like the way he did and to do his thing. No way. <laughs> and related, related also to my own kind of history. And here I'm talking about just youth as much as anything else. Uh, <laughs> in, in 19, whatever, 1979 or something like that, I probably would have been in three different bands in one year. <laughs> we got together, we're going to rehearse some songs, done a gig. Next band, that's done. <laughs> Move on. The idea of having to get funding to do that type of thing or, I don't know, be involved in some big organization to make it happen. So, again, that's where punk comes into it as well. It's about not having a big, massive record company behind you. Just invent a record company now. Do it now. Give it a name. Do it. Get your own record pressed. Put them out. Take them down to the record shops yourself. Hand them over yourself. No manager. No company. No record company. No music company. That that that's a small picture of the same thing, you know. So yeah, we need something like that again. We do. 
I, I agree with everything in your manifesto. I think it's very, very well written. I think it's, uh, it's uh, very inspiring. And uh, I, I, I haven't thought about this before. I was trying to think about uh, uh, something that I do without really trying to plan it out like that is my, my performance has been very limited recently. My, my playing the piano, obviously, because of COVID. But if you go back to just the year just before COVID, I, I did do things spontaneously I would play the piano with my bass player Richard Chablay in Starbucks I played a gig in Starbucks every week for coffee <laughs> I was paid with coffee <laughs> but I did not owe anybody anything I did not have to play any particular type of music you know what I mean so I only played my own music and it was quite experimental at times and I had my own rules about what what constituted an artistic, uh, an artistic success. Um, so in my book, all the concerts were successful <laughs> because I didn't care. It wasn't about people clapping. It wasn't about the people that owned the cafe saying thank you for increasing our products, uh, increasing our um, profits that night. I didn't owe them anything. They weren't paying me. So without really meaning to, well, because of the humiliation of the times, because of it being so hard to get a gig, so hard to get a venue, uh, I just did what I could, which is a gig in Starbucks. It worked okay. So I love the idea of doing that with other people, all with the same mindset. Let's do this. Just let's do it. It's interesting, you know, when you think about it, I mean, you know, prior to the 20th century, in fact, you know, presumably really kind of almost leading up to the like to, to, to the early mid 1950s um sort of art culture was a sort of a kind of a middle class or an upper class pursuit i mean it you know the kind of the the, the mozarts the beethovens you know or, you know of this world they would they would be living at the courts uh, they would be performing uh yeah. you know for like a kind of an aristocratic or kind of extremely well-heeled audience uh whilst peasants had their folk culture which was yeah. very very different um, but that, that distinction between folk culture and high culture was a, a kind of a class distinction as much yeah. as anything. Um, and then, of course, you know, like in the 19, in the in the 20th century, in the sort of in the 1920s, with the kind of the Bauhaus and the kind of the, the kind of emergence of art colleges and the also the kind of mass education that that kind of then kind of really kind of blossomed after the Second World War. Uh, and alongside with that, the welfare state that kind of provided some basic sort of security uh, for people to have to make choices about their lives that they wouldn't make if they didn't have that basic security. Um, so, 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 so there was a kind of on the one hand, the educational system broadened out and opened up and kind of expanded, uh, and on the other hand, of course, the welfare provisions, the welfare state expanded so that people felt they could actually um, uh, sort of take advantage of uh, of that. So in the, in the post-war years, um, all of a sudden kind of a culture emerged that was neither the kind of the high culture uh, of the upper classes of the kind of 18th, 19th century, nor was it the folk culture of the peasants of that time. It was a kind of a, a democratization of culture, which was really quite extraordinary. Uh, and so uh, much of what we think of in terms of modernism, um, in terms of modern art and, uh, and, and, and modern music, and of course, then also popular music, uh, you know, rock, punk, all of these things 
they, in a way, were generated, they came through this kind of democratization of culture um, and, and blossomed in that. That was really, if you like, it was, it was a high period of, of, of culture that was as much shaped bottom-up as it was kind of orchestrated top-down. Um, it, was, it was a very, very interesting period, sort of 1950 right up to 1980, maybe, maybe sort of like mid-80s, late-80s. It's At that point, it sort of started to crumble. Um, and um, but now we have ended sort of in, into a very different age, and we still have these kind of points of reference of this mm. post-war period where we kind of make those comparisons. Um, and um, but of course, the, the social and the kind of economic reality for young people today is so fundamentally different from what it was in the 1970s. Um, that, that of course they don't have those choices anymore. I mean, if today, if you want to kind of bring out, like, if, if establish yourself as a band, how are you going to pay for that promotional video? You know, how, how are you going to get up on the rankings of of, of Spotify or or, or <laughs> iTunes or whatever? Uh, you need significant investment behind you to do that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and of course, who's going to get that investment? Um, and the same, of course, goes for artists. How are you going to get your first catalog? Uh, you know, how are you going to get your first couple of exhibitions to make your name? Of course, that all needs to be funded. And these days, increasingly, is funded privately. You know, through families and friends of, of you know of those artists. It becomes it's we're moving back into kind of a sort of a class system. Um, and and the question is, and that clearly doesn't in so many ways. Um, in so many ways, doesn't kind of provide sufficient dexterity for you know uh, it, it it is it is a very much a it's entertainment yeah. you know it's 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 decoration it's 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 product um, and and so the question is is what kind of cultural strategies can we develop as musicians you know what can a band do now to mm -hmm. kind of to 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 to, to uh, you know. Uh, uh, to, to, to get their stuff out there. Yeah, no, I have no idea. An instant opera would be the answer. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, no, I, I, have, I have no idea. I'm, I'm uh, in quite a pessimistic uh, state around the whole thing. Uh, I, I've been brought low in that sense of humiliated. So the only thing I come up with just without really planning too much is just do things on, on a small scale, immediate, like you know this is thing so there isn't a, there, there's a kind of sort of a, a kind of a kind of almost a, a catalog of 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 boxes we can take uh, you, you know you know because anything that in a way that creates a hurdle that mm. requires funding that yeah. requires a permission uh, that requires a say so of someone else um is essentially going to stop you from doing it yeah, yeah. um and, and you know, you know, if it's only one permission you need to get, then that's a you know, and if if you can just go and ask, then that's mm -hmm. an easy thing. But mm -hmm. if you need multiple permissions stretched out for one thing, for one production, or for one idea, uh, you know, stretched out over eighteen months, mm -hmm. by the time you get to the end of this and you ask for your last permission, and you then get turned down at that last point, and we've all had that experience, yeah, yeah. you know, um, then you basically spent eighteen months on an idea, on a project, on a on a on a, on a work of art or a musical score, whatever it might be, that'll never see the day of light, uh, the light of day. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, so this is a thing, isn't it? It's kind of finding a way of doing things on the cheap, using yeah. spaces outside established spaces. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, doing that will shape the art we make. 
you yeah. know, like during Prohibition, jazz in, in the US was very quiet, yeah. wasn't it? Because we had to be quiet because you wanted yeah. to have a drink and it had to be quiet and so you couldn't play loud music. So the music during Prohibition was very much reflected the spaces and the kind of the conditions, uh, yeah. you know, you know, within which it was performed. Um, the same, of course, goes with so many other kind of art forms. It's it's the kind of the conditions um, mm. that 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 determine uh, the art, you know, to a large extent. And of course, Dadaism is no exception there. Mm. You know, Dadaism in a way was a direct response, a direct reflection of the sort of the the, the monstrous, nonsensical uh, kind yeah. of idea of war. Um, yeah. And and, um, and 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 you know and, and fluxes of course again and so you had, you had these movements and what we have to do now I think as artists as musicians you know as dancers as performers as painters we need to find ways of practicing and building an audience that doesn't involve asking for permission and and that is the real that's the crux of it and that'll create a new aesthetic. Because the kind of the permissions systems have evolved, you know, um, and so making art that kind of squeezes through uh, and, you know, gets past the permission system uh, today will look very different from what it would have looked like, you know, in the 1950s or in the 1920s. Um, so, so I think that's that that's a kind of a, a, a really kind of interesting, uh, re really interesting thought. Um, and um Going back once more to your own practice uh, as, as a, um, I found it quite interesting the way you have been kind of going between, I mean, you started off really, um, yeah, as a, you know, as, as a, I wouldn't say as a school dropout, but you started, you left school early and then you basically went into kind of in a typical kind of working class mm -hmm. uh, kind of, a, you know, factory environment and, yeah. and spent 10 years essentially in a blue color kind of uh, environment. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a moment, a eureka moment, when you decided, I can be a doctor, I can be a philosopher. Well, yes, yes, that's right. Um, you want to tell me a little bit, because I think that history, uh, that kind of sense, I think this is the kind of the eureka moments that I think that people need to rediscover in their own lives now. Sure, yeah. But I, have to, I just have to say one thing to you. I have a, a student about to arrive at a quarter past, so we'll have to keep it really quick. Let's uh, wrap it up, yes. Yeah, I did have a I did have a moment where I just uh, realized, you know, um, I think the time before I met you actually, but you you would have been uh, part of this as well. Um, just to cut a long story short, you more or less said something to me. You know, if you're going to be a composer, be a composer. <laughs> you know, it's not a hobby. And I, but but even before that, yes, I just decided I didn't need to work in a factory anymore. I needed to do what then I was passionate about, which was philosophy. So I did. I just made a decision. And that was with very, very little education. I just got into university by the side door by getting to know lecturers and talking to them and convincing them that I could do it. And I didn't I didn't go to university to get a degree. I went to get a PhD. I, I wanted to go as far as I could and read as much as I could. So yes, that was that was like a one of the few big decisions I made in life. And then that's that's merged later on. By deciding if I'm going to write music, I need to know more about it. So I'll go and do a master's in composition. Yeah, just for myself, not not to get qualifications, just to be in the right place. You know, yeah. Excellent. Well, Keith, thank you very very much. I mean, this is I think there, there there's something about about this sort of um, sort of 
long biographies of you know like like yours but i mean actually mine is also quite a long winded biography but that's the story for another day but yeah. you know like were you in a way follow it sounds it sounds like terribly cliched i wouldn't say a dream but a sort of a you kind of you you basically you know where you think about your life not in terms of kind of a sort of a series of career progressions but where you think about your own life essentially also, if you like, as a work of art, as something that you shape and that you hopefully at some point in your life later on are able to look back at and say, well, I have done all right. Not in terms of making money, but the kind of human oh. being I have become. And I think yeah. going back to Hugo Ball, yes. this idea of a humiliating age, Yes. It's yeah. it's in those times I think where it is particularly difficult to stay the course. It is. It is. It is in those days, at those times when we are being diminished, <laughs> when we kind of find ourselves making compromises that we wouldn't make at other times, where we yes. kind of come up against our own limitations, you know, our own weaknesses, our own fears. And mm -hmm. I think I think we are in that sense in a humiliating age in a way that it makes it very, very difficult to be that artist and uh, to yeah. be that philosopher without the kind of institutional trappings that kind of give you the security. And so I think at this very personal level, um, anybody who really has a sense of who or what they want to be and see how our times hold us back. Um, yeah. We'll we'll understand this notion of a humiliating age very yeah. intuitively, and, and I, I can see that you're kind of really uh, waiting to finish because there's somebody oh, in the board, background the who, wants, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. who wants to be taught, presumably yes. piano or the guitar. Sure, you, have, you have to make money as well. <laughs> oh God, that's terrible. We all do. I know, I know. So Keith, I thank you very, very much. Mm -hmm. It's been really, it's been a slow start, very difficult to to, to get us right. together. I mean, it's short. Sorry, but but nonetheless, it's been a really really nice talk, and I hope we'll kind of carry that on at some point uh, in in, in the in the future. That would be good. Great, thanks, people. <laughs> Thank you. I'll see you again. It's absolutely. See you soon. Cheers. Bye.